4th through 8, and I'm hoping over the next three weeks to finish 1st John, and then I've been instructed to maybe consider taking us to the book of Jude, which I think will be kind of nice. Uh, just a couple things uh, highlighting on the, uh, whoa, the movie last night. Um, you know, is, is the Bible reliable? Is it something that we can trust? And just a couple of highlights I just want to hit real quick because it really ties into the sermon because there are three that bear witness, the water, the blood, and the spirit, and these three are in agreement. A couple of things I want to make sure that we understand. The Bible doesn't just contain the Word of God. Church, the Bible is the living Word of God. Very important that we understand that. And the Bible will defend itself. Okay? The job of Dr. Carter and I to do, to the best of the ability God gives us, to tell you what the Bible means. That's our job. Um, What did God say? Do we have his actual words? Some things that we need to understand is that the ancient sources, church, they've been discovered, studied, analyzed. A couple other points back, especially in the Old Testament times. The scribes that were penning the documents that we have as our Bible would write one letter at a time and take a bath after every letter of the Hebrew text. So please understand they copied it carefully. And today, in existence... There are over 25,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament that now exist. And we can compare all of them so that we can have an accurate understanding of what's being said. There is nothing in ancient literature that even comes remotely close to the amount of manuscripts we have. Today, still in existence, we have over 5,600 plus Greek manuscripts dating back to the second century. There's a document called the P52 that has parts of the Gospel of John, church that date back to just 100 years after the death of Christ. John was living in AD 90. It's pretty certain that he was alive when that document was being penned. There's a papyrus called the Bodmer Papyrus that contains the book of John and Luke that dates back to as early as 175 years after the death of Christ. There's another document called the Chester Beatty document that contains all four Gospels that date back to just 200 years after the death of Christ. And I could go on and on. We have the Synodicus, the Vaticanus. We have 8,000 copies of the New Testament in the Latin Vulgate dating all the way back to only 382 years after the death of Christ. 350 Syriac documents going back to 200 years of Christ. Here's the thing. they all say the same thing. You could trust your Bible. It's reliable. It is the living Word of God. I wanted to kind of highlight on that because we're going to go into 1 John, and we're going to look at verses, I guess, 4 through 8. I think they're up on the screen. You want to follow along? 5 through 8, 5 through 9. Follow along with me. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with water and with blood. 
And it is the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, who is God, who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. <clears throat> For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. Slide three. Now, in our last time together, we learned how we know that we are the children of God. We learned that is when we love God and we keep his commandments. We had also learned that it is also when we love God's offspring, that is the brothers and sisters in Christ. <clears throat> I do want to review some of that. And there are three main key points this morning that I want to cover here in the scriptures. Keeping his commandments, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, and a correct doctrine about the Lord Jesus Christ, which is under vicious ta attack, as we saw if you were here last night when we showed that movie. Here's something that Dr. Morton Lloyd-Jones says. Um, do we have that up? Slide three. No? Oh, man. <clears throat> well, I'm going to read it, and hopefully we can follow along. Dr. Morton Lloyd-Jones, uh, reflecting on verse five, four and five that we're going to go through in a minute, says this. If the whole basis of my victory and my overcoming the world is that I have faith in Christ and I lean upon him, and if I am to look to him and rely upon him, then it is important for me to know that I can rely upon him. <clears throat> if I'm going to risk the whole of my life and the whole of my outlook upon this particular reliance, then I must absolutely be certain about it. You must be sure of your foundation before you can erect your building. You must be right about the first principles before you can put in the details. So slide four, here we are. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world of faith. I don't know if you can see my little dot here, but you have the cause to be born. There's the word ek of God. Overcomes. We're going to talk about the word. You guys even know that word. Don't realize it. Overcomes the cosmos. So let me unpack that for you a little bit. We see those words born of God. Now, we've already learned what that means, that word born. It is God, church that generates and gives new life to a person. That word of there that you see in the Greek text there, that's the word ex, where you get the word exit from. That's our English word exit. So what does this mean, born of God? Our new life for you and I originates out of God because it is God and only God that can make a person a new creature. So it's important that whatever or whoever is born of God overcomes the world, that is a new creature. He, God, is the only one that can make this possible. But then John tells us something that we must always remember when trials and difficulties come our way. Listen this morning. The moment a person comes to saving faith in Christ and is regenerated, meaning he is now born again, that person, if he's truly born again, becomes aware of the forces that he is in conflict with. Put up slide five. Look at what John says. He says, overcomes the world. 
Now, that word overcome is where we get our word Nike from. You ever see those sneakers with that little mark? That word means victory. So when you see the Nike, their whole idea is wearing our sneakers gives you victory. Okay? So this begs the question, what do you and I need victory from as we still live in this fallen world? What do we need the victory from? Suffering. Disease. Hate. Anybody that you're struggling hating right now? Anybody that you're really bitter towards right now? You're harboring bitterness? Hebrews says, beware that, str- that the string of bitterness welling up in your soul and defiling you. How about immorality? How about destroyed families? Wickedness? Drug addiction? Alcoholism? Pride? Selfishness? Pain? Death? And this is not an exhaustive list. This is just some highlighted points of what we need victory from. We need that nikeo, that victory. So the person who overcomes the world is a person who has come to a saving faith in a person whose name is Jesus Christ. So it would seem then that the first thing that you and I need to realize if we've come to faith in Christ and are born again is that something has happened to us. Has something happened to you since you claim to have come to a saving faith in Christ? Something happened to you. Listen, the reason that you and I can have victory over this world we live in is because you and I have been born out of God. Our new life has originated out of God. So that means that your life and my life is not the same anymore. When you come to a saving faith in Christ, you will begin to see things differently. When you come to a saving faith in Christ, you should have a new outlook on life. Your plans change. Your thinking begins to change. You know that you have been forgiven. You have a hunger for the Word of God. You want to saturate your soul with the Word of God because it's a living Word. Slide 6. So let me ask you, do you know that you have been forgiven? Do do you see life differently now because you're not alone in there anymore? God, the Holy Spirit, is indwelling you. Do you have a new outlook on your life? And most importantly, do you have joy in your life? Church, hear me this morning. Every person who has been born of God, everyone who has been given a new life in Christ has also been given the power to be able to keep God's commands and have victory over the sinful influences that come our way. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same exact power given to you and I to be able to walk in a new way of life that glorifies God. Same power. How is this power given to you and I so that we can have the victory over these sinful influences that just barrage us all the time? He answers it in the text. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, this is important. Hear the next part of this. 
Our faith is how the power of God that gives us victory is applied to our life. That faith is the conduit. It is how that power of God that gives victory to you and I, that is how it is applied to our lives. And hear this. God alone gives us the very faith we need to live in this fallen world. He gives us the very faith we need to believe in Him in the first place. So if we are able to overcome this world, we need something that will give us that ability to do that. We don't have the power to do that on our own. We need a power that we do not have inside of ourselves. So God Himself gives us the very power we need. Church, it's an unseen power that is greater than all the enemies can throw at us. Greater is he that is you than he that is in the world. No unsaved person can possibly know or understand his power until they come to a saving faith in Christ and are born again. <clears throat> so John asks a rhetorical question in verse 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world or has victory over the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Look at slide 7. John really begins to unpack this now about the witness. <clears throat> in verse 6, John says, This is the one that came by water and blood. You see that? That's where we get the word hydrate from. Hudatas, and there's the word hema. Hematas, blood. This is the one that came by Hudatas and Amos, by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with water and with the Hema, the blood. You see that? It is the Spirit who testifies. There's your pneuma. There's your Spirit that testifies. So let's, let's unpack this. This is the one that came by water and blood. It's this, this one in the Greek text here, the Greek's very emphatic. I can just imagine when John's writing this, he says, guys, this is the one, guys. This is the one. He's very emphatic here. You can almost sense his emotion. He, you can see he wants us to understand that this person is God the Son, Jesus, who's coming to the world. What is John saying to us? He wants us to know that there's plenty of evidence to prove that Jesus is the Son of God who provides eternal life. John is declaring here in the statement that beyond any question, Jesus is God the Son. And he has declared that he is the Son of God by his baptism, by water, by his death on the cross, which is the shedding of blood. So let's, let's, let's unpack this a bit. Let's take a look at this. John is looking at the work of Christ and his ministry. So this idea of he came by water that's coming seems to carry with it that, that Christ had a purpose in his coming. He just didn't show up nonchalant. He had a definitive purpose in his coming. He is, the, he is coming as the Messiah with water and blood. So his first public act by water is baptism. He came by water. It seems that this is when Jesus launched his ministry on earth. Look at the slide 8. So let's, let's let the scripture validate scripture. <clears throat> slide 8, 9, and 10 will cover this. This is John 1, 
26 through 32. So John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you don't know. It is he who came after me, the thong whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. baptizing. Verse 29, slide 9. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Now look at this. Eyewitness testimony. Behold the Lamb of God who literally carries or takes away the sin of the world. Explanation point. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who is higher in rank than I because he existed before me. I didn't recognize him, but so that he might be manifested or revealed to Israel, I came baptizing with water. John testified, verse 32, I have seen the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, descending as a dove out of heaven, remaining upon him. Verse 33, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. John says, his eyewitness testimony, I myself have seen and I've testified that this is the Son of God. And not enough for you? Well, we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke's testimony. How about slide 11 and 12? <clears throat> Matthew says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. John tries to prevent him, saying, What? I have need to be baptized by you, and you, you come to me? Verse 15, Jesus answers him and says, Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. By 12. Verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus comes immediately up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove, and lighting on him. Here's Matthew's eyewitness account. And behold, by the way, you, they can see and they can hear. Look at verse 17. A voice out of heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So you guys got eyewitness accounts of what they saw and what they heard. How about Mark and Luke? Slide 13. Mark 1.11, Mark says, A voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Luke, he says, The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven saying, You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Church, notice something. Matthew, Mark, Luke, all testify that they heard God the Father's voice called Jesus his son. John himself testifies emphatically that he saw and bore record that Jesus is the son of God. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all giving 
testimony of this. But then we also have the blood. And, uh, and you guys listening around the world, if the church is not preaching the blood, run. Run from it. Without the blood, there's no remission of sin, church. So the text says, not with water only, but with water and with blood. So, hear me this morning. The crimson blood of Jesus Christ, his death on that cross, which back then was the capital form of punishment, declares that Jesus is the Son of God. Hear me this morning. It is only by his death on that cross that our sin debt is paid in full. There's nothing else that is going to pay your sin debt in full. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Christ took our judgment, he suffered, and he died. So the blood points us directly to that work of Christ himself, the work of reconciling us to the Father. 5.14. Here's what I have told on this. I want you to see this again. In the beginning was the Word, that's the Logos, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. And of course, our text says the Word was God. But I want you to see here these words. You see the word arcane, and you see this word here, right? You have ain here. You have it the second time here, was, was, right? And you have it a third time here, okay? I'm going to cover that in a minute because God doesn't put words in the Bible by accident. So you're going to see the word was two, three times. In the beginning, was. Let me unpack why this is so important for you. I had to put the Greek up there. I want you to see this with your own eyes, okay? Let me unpack this. That word beginning, you see there, the word arcane, we get our word archaeology from it or arcane. What does that word mean? That word means in the original language source or origin. That word beginning, the word arcane means source or origin. So Jesus, who is called the Lagos, right there, he's called the Lagos, is the originator and source of all things. Okay? Then you see the word was. That's the word ame that is pointed out three times. That word means existence. It speaks of a continuous action in the past, which shows you and I that Jesus was already in existence before the world was. It stresses that Jesus, who is the Logos, has always existed. And there's never been a time where he not, did not exist. So, in the beginning, his source or origin, he was already in existence. He was there. From all eternity past with the Father, he's always been there. What can we conclude from this? <clears throat> there was never a time when the Lagos was not. Jesus is teaching us, or John is teaching us, that that Lagos existed before creation. No, we did not just have a big bang, big bang theory or any of that nonsense. The text makes it clear that the word, Jesus is not a created being, 
but that he has always existed with the Father. The text says, the Word was with God. Okay, or God was the Word. This is what we call the prostantheon in the Greek language. Another important thing that we need to understand. That word with, that you've heard Dr. Carter and I teach before, is the word pros. What does that mean? It speaks of a, of a, of a forward direction or pros. We're, we're facing and looking forward. So what you have here, this, this logos with the Father, you have these, these two beings of the Godhead facing each other, engaging in intelligent conversation or communication with each other. This intimacy between the Father and Son, constantly pros, moving forward towards each other. So the scriptures are clear. Jesus Christ from all eternity past has always been with the Father, and the text backs it up. He is not uh, uh, Michael the archangel. He is God the Son from all eternity who spoke the world into existence. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. I tried to bring that in as easy as I could for us. And then this, this Jesus, condescends, slide 15. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is pretty cool, too. The logos becomes, this is the word sarks, flesh. Here's the word became, the cause to be. And this is eskenun, this means dwelt. Literally, the word pitched his tent of flesh. He became something he wasn't before. Because he is the monogenes, the only begotten, the one of a kind, coming, emanating from, para, patas, patras, becoming from the Father full of grace and truth. So what do we have here? This word, this logos, from all eternity past, now clothes himself in human flesh, becomes a human being just like you and I, except without sin. The infinite now also becomes finite. So back in John, 1 John 5, 6, he finishes with, it is the spirit Slide 15 still, right? It is the Spirit that testifies or constantly bears witness because the Spirit is truth. John wants us to understand that God the Holy Spirit testifies to us, speaks inside of us in our hearts, as well as through the preaching of the Word, that both Jesus' baptism and his death clearly identifies him as the unique, monogamous, one-of-a-kind, only Son of the living God. Church, the witness of the Holy Spirit bears witness that Jesus Christ is the Son. How about slide 16? How John just keeps building here and building and building. He's very emphatic here. You can almost sense the emotion. He says, <clears throat> there are three that testify, literally bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. Another fancy word there. For the word to testify, that's the word martyrantes, the spirit, the water, the blood. These three are in agreement. These three agree. So what do we have here? What does John want us to know? And I think the answer to those questions are found in the text, in the message. We've been looking at the witness of the water, 
we've been looking at the witness of the blood and now the witness of the Holy Spirit. So <clears throat> this begs the question, how did God the Holy Spirit bear witness that Jesus is the Son of God? Slide 17. Remember John's testimony? We have John 133 and Matthew 316. What did the Holy Spirit do to bear witness? John says, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize and water spoke to me, said to me. He said to him, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And we have Matthew's account. Verse 16 in Matthew 3. After being baptized, Jesus comes up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens are open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. So clearly, church, clearly from the text of Scripture, we see the Holy Spirit bearing witness that Jesus is the Son of God. By the way, you look at the manuscripts we were talking about at the beginning of the message, there's no doctrinal differences anywhere. None. Doesn't matter if you use look at the Byzantine or Nestles or Skytendorf or any of the texts, the original, the texts that have interpreted the Greek first, they all say the same thing. The Holy Spirit bears witness that Jesus is the Son of God. How else does the Holy Spirit bear witness? Well, he bears witness in the church that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. How does he do that? Well, slide 18, he assures believers that they are the children of God. Look at the verse. Romans 8.16 should give every one of you believers, you listening around the world, comfort. The Spirit himself testifies or bears witness with our spirit that we are the technos of theos. We are the children of God. The Holy Spirit bears witness, giving believers assurance. How about Ephesians 1.13? In him. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You see that? In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal Son of God. The gospel of your salvation, having believed, also believed, you were sealed in him. I want to take a moment and understand what is Paul teaching us here about this work of the Holy Spirit. He says, you were sealed in him, the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean for us? Well, first, everyone who comes to a saving faith in Christ and trusted him alone for the salvation, the Holy Spirit begins to dwell within that person. As I said before, you're not in there alone if you're a believer. How about slide 19? <clears throat> what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6, 19? Don't you know that your body, there's a different word there, that's the word soma, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own. Now, I want you to see this word temple here. We have a couple of different words for temple. 
I want to make sure we don't miss the significance of this in, in the text here. He's not using the word herion there, which means basically the temple, inner court, outer court, you know, the court of Gentiles. The word that he's using here is the word naos. Well, why is that important for us to know that? Well, inside the temple, the very sacred, holiest place in the temple was called the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant used to be. That housed the Ten Commandments and Aaron's bud and so forth. And that was the very most sacred part. And each year, a priest with a rope wrapped around him and bells on his robe would go in there, and he would make a blood offering from a lamb to, as a covering for the sins of Israel. Of course, that's a type and shadow of Christ being the spotless lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Well, what's important about that is that was the holy, holy, the most sacred part of the temple. So Paul's saying, listen, that same Holy Spirit that went into the Holy of Holies, the most sacred part of the temple, he's calling your body the naos. Don't you know that your soma, your body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? You are carrying around the same Holy Spirit with you that went into the temple when the priest made an atonement and the Holy Spirit would come down and take that blood offering because he would sprinkle with a hyssop branch onto the ark to atone for sin. He's saying your body is so important that it's a temple. You don't want to be laying with prostitutes. You don't want to be using your body in a way that just completely does not glorify God because he's in you, and you're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his. So when you and I come to a saving faith in Christ, truly a saving faith, life becomes different for you because the spirit of God is indwelling you. And by the way, the Greek emphasizes that's a permanent indwelling. God doesn't give an eviction notice or say, well, I've been in here three years. It's time for me to move on and find another place. He's permanently with you. So when people are saying, I'm alone, you're really not. He is your helper. He is your advocate. He is your guarantee. So Paul uses the word seal here in the text. Why is that important? Well, the sealing that Paul speaks of here, and and again, he's talking to a Roman crowd, I believe, at this time too, refers to an official mark of identification that would be placed on a letter, contract, or some kind of very important document. Today we have a notary. It's important we get a notary to stamp it, right? Well, back then, they had a ring, and I'm going to cover that in a second, a seal. And that seal was an official mark of identification that was placed on these important documents. So back in Paul's day, the seal would be made from hot wax, which was then placed on the document, and then whoever that was an official would use a signet ring and mark it. The document was then officially identified with and under the authority of the person that that ring belonged to. How does that flesh into what we're talking about this morning? The idea then behind our being sealed with Christ is that the Holy Spirit signifies the authenticity and ownership of you, the believer. You're not your own. You see, church, back in Paul's day, the seal of a king or a prince, now listen, was non-revocable. Once it's done, 
It's done. Christ does not undie on the cross, and don't let any false prophet tell you you can lose your salvation. No one can snatch you out of his hand. And then the idea of being sealed means non-revocable. You're his. So when God gives a believer his Holy Spirit, it means he stamps us with a seal that reads, this child is my offspring, it belongs to me, and it's non-revocable. You can't have him, Satan. He's a citizen of my kingdom. He's now adopted and is a member of my divine family. It's like the Holy Spirit is the signet ring. The hot wax is the blood that he stamps us with. Blood applied, he's now mine. What else does the Holy Spirit do? Dr. Carr and I could preach on the Holy Spirit all day long. Slide 20. Holy Spirit bears witness by teaching believers about Christ. John 14, 26. But the helper, I think that might be the, but the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside, the one that takes you by the hand, the paraclete, whom the Father, now look at this, don't miss this church, this is good stuff, the helper, the paraclete, basically paraclete, the one who walks alongside of us, he's with us, Holy Spirit, who the Father is going to send in my name, he will teach you all things. Bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit's work in the life of a believer when it comes to genuine repentance is there. Listen. Since the call to repentance is absolutely necessary in the proclamation of the gospel, we need to have a correct understanding of what true repentance is and the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. Come slide 21. One of my favorite, all-time favorite authors that I've grown to love is Paul Washer. And he has a book out called The Gospel, Paul, and True Conversion. I encourage everyone, you listening, to get that book. He has this in there. Eight characteristics of true biblical repentance. Again, so if the Holy Spirit comes in you, you're going to start having any conviction. The things that you used to practice... You're now going to be like, oh, wait a minute, I can't do that anymore. That's, that's not right. <clears throat> so what are these characteristics? Well, the word metanoia means change of mind or go in the opposite direction. So there is a change of mind. There is a genuine, true sorrow for sin. When was the last time, church, that we wept over our own indwelling sin? When was the last time that we had that deep, grieving sorrow and pain for how we sinned against holy God? There needs to be a personal acknowledgement and homagaleo, or confession of sin. But not just stopping there. Jesus, I'm sorry, move on, do the same thing over and over again. There needs to be this turning away from behaviors that glorify Satan in the world and a turning inward towards Christ, meaning that there's got to be this renunciation of self-righteousness. There's no act by where you and I on our own can make ourselves right with God. We do not have a righteousness of our own to make ourselves right with God. That comes from Christ. There needs to be this turning to God. Is any of that happening in your life? 
practical obedience. Being in the word of God to know what that even is and looks like. The Holy Spirit of God never works independently from the Lagos or the word, the rhema of God. If you want to be able to walk in obedience with God, you need to know what that looks like and is. Most Christians today don't even know where the Ten Commandments are found in the Scriptures. None of them go to Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. They can't quote them. How in the world can I do it if I don't even know His Word? Here's another thing. If there's a relationship with the Lord, how do you invest into that relationship? God's not interested in a casual dating of you once in a while when things would be bad, then you call on Him. Oh, let's date now, God. You know, if you're His bride and this is his church, we need to be investing into that relationship and doing our part, letting him speak to us through the written word of Scripture, letting that word inculcate our being so that we know how to walk in obedience with him. There needs to be practical obedience, and there needs to be this continuing and deepening work of repentance. So at the time of conversion, a person's grasp of the heinous nature of sin may be meager, but it will be real. And lastly, slide 22. So repentance, therefore, don't miss this, please. <clears throat> repentance, therefore, involves a radical change in a person's perception of things or in his view of reality. In the scriptures, this change of mind is never confined to intellect but has an equally radical effect on the emotions and the will. In summary, genuine metanoia, genuine repentance begins with the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the sinner. If that's not happening, you need to ask yourself, have I really come to saving faith in Christ? Or do I want a God of my own making? Whereby, this Holy Spirit regenerates the heart. He gives you a new heart of flesh. Gets rid of that heart of stone. He illuminates your mind. He exposes error by the revelation of his divine truth. <clears throat> because of this divine work, the sinner's mind is changed. His view of reality is altered, especially with regard to God, self, sin, and the way of salvation. Has that... This is important. This is not a game. This is not fun. Has this process happened in your life? Someday, you're going to drop dead. There's going to come a time where they're not going to wake you up. There's going to come a time when they hit you with those paddles or whatever. You're not coming back. And it is appointed once for a person to die and then a judgment. Please, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody, there's no second chance. No purgatory. There's no special place you go to strike backroom deals with God and say, well, look, I was good some of the time. It doesn't happen. It is appointed once for a man to die and then the judgment. Sin generates consequences, and the life you are living right now generates consequences. Every one of you is going to have to appear before the beam of seat of God to give an account of the deeds that you did in your body, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. So ask yourself this morning, this is the chance for you to do business with God. Has your mind been changed? Do you have that deep, grieving sorrow for the sin in your life 
Or is it so much that it doesn't even affect you anymore? You've calcified your heart so much that sin is just the norm for you. Is there a personal acknowledgement and confession of your sin? Are you having any alone time with God at all? Here's another really important question. When was the last time you were really alone with the Lord and His Word so He could have all the distractions, the television off, the radio off, or you're just alone with Him and you're reading His Word and you're letting Him speak to you? You don't need the world's Oprah garbage, second-rate wisdom system garbage out there and all the garbage of this New Age theory just attacking your mind. You have the ultimate source of truth in the Scriptures. You have the number one most important thing. You have God's pre-recorded word in Scriptures. Everything that God has said, he's put in there. If Jesus was sitting there right now in that chair, everything he'd want to say to you, he's already said in his word. There is sufficiency in the Scripture. You don't need anything outside of that. The Word of God is whole and complete. It's infallible. It never changes. God does not add some little revision to His Word. Get into the Word. Ask yourself, has your mind been changed? Do you have a sorrow for sin? Are you turning away from it? Are you saying there's things that I can't watch anymore that I need to turn away from? There's things that I cannot participate anymore. Because the Bible says, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness and set and expose them. Are there things in your life, are there people in your life that you need to say, I need to step away from that person because that person is affecting my behavior. He's bringing back my old nature and making me want to do things that I shouldn't be doing anymore. I know that's hard. I know there's people we love. I know there's people that are struggling with same-sex and and homosexuality and lesbianism. And I'm not saying we disrespect those people. But their way of life is not in consistency with God's way of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for allowing us this time to soak into your word. We thank you that you love us. And Lord, right now as we are here, Lord, we want to be still and know that you're God. Lord, for the next couple of minutes, help us to think about our mortality. Lord, we have this thinking that, you know, every day is going to be like the day before and we're going to live forever. But Lord, as I know as I've gotten older, I realize that, at least for me, the days ahead are much less than the days behind. Lord, can you help us all make the most of our time here because the days are evil, as you tell us in Hebrews? Lord, can you convict our spirit? Can you bring to our minds right now those things that we're practicing that are dishonoring to you, especially for us that are born-again believers? How we're disrespecting you when we disrespect the temple. And Lord, I know these are hard things for us to hear but they need to be preached and taught from the pulpit. Lord, I, for one, am not going to back away from that. So help us, Lord. Help us to see ourselves the way we really are, to see our sin for what it really is, to grieve over our sin, to turn from it, and to walk in obedience with you. Lord, thank you for this time, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Look up, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord.